Great. Thank you. I think I'll, I will start this panel. Uh, my, name is, my name is Ted Horton. Um, I'm a partner in the Securities and Capital Markets Group at Seward & Kissel um, in New York. Um, I'll just do a very quick introduction of the panel, and if you'd all like to say something more, you're welcome to. Um, so we have uh, Epson Lizdahl. I'm sorry, I have to put my glasses on, which is how I'm getting older. Um, so we have Epson, who is um, in the investment banking group at Clarkson's Plateau. Um, we have Krista Volpicelli, who is uh, at Citibank, and doing two panels in a row, so thank you for that, for, for sitting in today. Um, to Krista's left, we have uh, Erling Ganges, um, excuse me, um, at Fernley, and we have Doug Mavernack at Jeffries um, today. Um, I guess where I'll start is, is it just as a broad question, we were all sitting at panel similar to this sort of the end of 2019 um, and looking at 2020 is a lot of opportunities. We were having some rates that were uh, not only just in the tanker space but in some of the other sectors as well that were, 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 were strong, some were above NEV. Uh, we had the, uh, some opportunities from, from IMO 2020 that were looking positive uh, for the new year and, and here we are now with a slightly different market or a different perception probably on the capital markets. Um, so I guess sort of my first question, and just put it out to the panelists. I want to start with you because you're on the first to my left. Is sort of what, what, are, what are we attributing to, to where we are today versus where we thought we might be in November? And I'm assuming that what's happening in China is part of that. And I guess the, the, the sort of the follow-on question is: Do you see this as just a, a speed bump towards the recovery that we saw at the end of the year, or is this something that might be a little bit more lasting? Well. Um Uh, first things first, I think uh, if you just look isolated on the, on the coronavirus, I think uh, there are some parallels you can draw to, to uh, the last virus outbreak we had in 2003, which was SARS. Uh, the fatality rate uh, back then was closer to 10%, whereas it's uh, still early to, to draw any conclusions. But uh, what we've seen today are, uh, are 75 seasons and uh, around 2,000 deaths. So that uh, amounts to a 2% roughly fatality debt uh, rate. Um, uh, so I think the market is, in general is uh, overreacting, which it typically does. And to answer your question short, I think it will bounce back. But how long? Um, how long it will take? It's uh, very difficult to say. Uh, we had a very good run in, uh, in the tanker sector in the fourth quarter. Uh, and when events like this happen, uh, and, uh, then uh, the hedge funds, they take uh, profits. And uh, it's a natural uh, part of the cycle. Um, so, so maybe just to add to that, I think, you know, we, we certainly ended 2019 feeling that 2020 was going to be a year that equity investors started paying attention to shipping again, and, and we saw that, we felt that certainly in the fourth quarter, and then things dramatically changed, um, you know, with, with the events. I mean, the, the overall market is, you know, flat to a little bit up this year, whereas uh, pretty much all sectors of shipping that are listed are down 
anywhere from 15% to 50% in terms of, of stock prices. And I guess if lessons are learned from the past, it always it takes longer to come back up than it does to fall down. So I, I do think that this will put a damper on just activity in the capital markets for shipping, certainly in the first half. Um, I, I do think that there are structural elements in many of the underlying markets, particularly in the tanker market, which uh, once we get past uh, kind of the, the slowdown caused by coronavirus, you know, hopefully things then rebound the second half of the year. Uh, but it, it certainly has, and, and we believe will have an impact, um, at least for the next quarter, in my view. Early? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think the only certain thing at the moment is that there's a lot of uncertainty. And uh, we agree that uh, risk is probably on the downside for the next uh, two, three months. Uh, but after that, we, we remain optimistic, and uh, we think that once... China gets the, the situation under control, there could be a potential uh, wave, demand wave uh, coming out of China as the country restocks and, uh, and gets ready to, to get their economy back on track. Yeah, Ed, um, I agree with uh, everyone else's comments. Yeah, Ed, I agree with everyone else's comments. I mean, um, the, the couple of, uh, I guess, um, twists that we would add would be that you know, we didn't get to where we were at the end of 2019 on accident. Um, it took years of discipline ordering, um, years of demand growth, such that vessel utilization across all asset classes, across all sectors, got to the point where crew tanker rates were very strong, dry rates were very strong, et cetera. And it, it seems like it would be very unlikely that a temporary, a, road, um, a bump in the road would derail that. I mean, clearly, um, you've seen a negative effect in the near term, and it may last, who knows, two weeks, two months, something like that. But fundamentally speaking, um, if we look at where the markets were just six weeks ago, um, we were at quite healthy levels. Um, and Erling you know, mentioned, you know, destocking and unnecessary restocking and economic activity improving. Um, you know, as we know, whenever you see a disruption, we will see a resumption, a, a rebound in activity. And I heard a, a comment from the Chinese premier talking about how he anticipated 2020's GDP growth to be similar to 2019. Now, we know that the first quarter may be like 1%. So that should highlight the expectations for 2Q, 3Q, and 4Q. And as we know, you know, there's likely to be, whenever we see periods of economic distress, there's also periods of economic stimulus that comes about as a result to kind of get things back on track. So while it's tough now, um, we could be in a pretty decent market later this year, we think. And I guess a lot of it depends on how long this goes on. Is that right? right. I mean, that's, that's the big variable. If, it's, if it ends this first quarter, we're probably in good shape. If it's right. going into the second quarter, it's a yeah. different situation. And that's the thing no one knows, right? So, I mean, if you do a lot of reading on this, you'll read that, you know, the latest thinking is it's mostly older people or people that smoke or some sort of person that's not healthy. And, you know, who knows if it ends up being similar stats to just the common flu. Um, so, but, you know, the reaction in the near term has been real, um, but, you know, who knows how long it lasts, but it may end up being, you know, just another thing. Right. I guess sort of a related issue, so there was the, there was the IMO 2020 and the impact that was, that was going to have in the new year that everyone was questioning, and to some extent I think the, what's happening in China now is probably preventing a lot of good information from coming out of the impact of that. In other words, 
whether or not there was going to be on the, on, the, on the supply side, whether or not there was going to be the yards and there was going to take something out of supply. I guess that's all being attributed now to, to the coronavirus and to those issues. But from your perspective, do you see anything or any sort of insight as to whether 2020 was good, bad, or, or sort of a non-event, as, as maybe some people are suggesting we've sort of moved beyond that uncertainty? Start with well, you, Doug, again. Yeah, you know, it's hard to say. There are a lot of um, uncertainties, variables at work. Um, I would say that the observations of fuel spreads, scrubber, economics, et cetera, were pointing towards, um, you know, given the width of the spreads, that scrubbers were paying off and you were starting to see, you know, decent premiums being um, earned. Um, obviously, things have gotten muddied a bit, um, but, um, but the short-term impact has been positive for some that adopted that particular technology. Now, what's going to be interesting is when you look at the refinery runs in China and you start seeing kind of how they're cutting back on certain types of fuels, the spreads are likely to narrow, and that could distort in the near term, as long as that uh, is in, in place, that could distort the premiums that some of the scrubbers earn. But long story short, it does seem like it has been a positive for ship owner earnings. And not only that, but as that premium has been observed, you would think that there would be continued scrubber installations. Now, there's been obviously disruptions on that front too, but to the extent that that extends longer and throughout 2020, that's just a longer period where um, some ships and some fleets are out of service, fleet efficiency is you know, diminished, and, and so that should be a positive as well. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, I agree completely with that. I think the initial read is that IMO 2020 has had a positive effect and probably will continue to have a positive effect. Uh, when it comes to the spread, it's also very correlated to oil price, right? So when you've seen a drop in oil price recently, so as the oil price probably recovers, so will the spread, uh, most likely. Do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, um, it, it has played out partially, but uh, it hasn't really played out for uh, the product tanker space. Uh, and uh, but uh, I think it will over time. I think it's just a it's just a matter of time. There's a lagging effect. Uh, and as far as the IMO 2020 story, uh, that story is still intact. Uh, but I think for analysts, it's uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to assess earnings for listed peers because we have. Uh, sort of four different categories now of uh, of uh, of uh, vessels. You have non-eco, non-eco with scrubbers, eco, and eco with scrubbers, and uh, they're not all earning the same. And quite frankly, in the current uh, dry bulk market, for instance, you have some owners that are earnings have earnings above cash break even, whereas uh, some have uh, uh, fixtures uh, closer to thousand um, dollars a day. Switching gears a little bit, so I've seen one of the one of the sort of themes that have run through all of the panels, or at least most of the panels we've heard today, are the environmental issues and the ESG issues on the capital market side, and 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 for the equity investors, I guess two things. One one is are are is the shipping space able to play? with ESG investors. So some of the institutional investors, particularly, I guess we're talking, as you say here, the, the E side of this category, but they have some 
um, investment guidelines that I think some people take a view is that shipping is just not going to be able to satisfy it. It probably depends on where you are, but if it's a petroleum product, you may not be able to be there. I, I guess the question is, is that something that you think or see is going to have maybe an impact in shipping when the equity markets do come back, uh, given the fact that some of these institutional investors may not be you know, main players right now in the space? And are there things that if you were a shipping company today, you would want to be or should be focusing on to try to play into those um, to those interests, to those ESG investors. Kristen, we'll start with you. Sure, I, I'm happy to start. I, I, I think that um, in the equity markets, the ESG theme has certainly been more prevalent in Europe than it has in the U.S. markets. I think Europe is several years ahead of the U.S. That said, um, I think I've been surprised at how quickly we are starting to see U.S. investors care and ask questions about these kinds of topics. I think that, you know, the reality is a classic investor focused on environmentally friendly themes is not going to be investing in shipping. Um, but that said, I think that investors broadly do care. Uh, they, they want to see companies be good stewards of capital. And I think that, you know, companies who are, you know, some people talk about it as just marketing uh, in terms of, you know, a stab, you know, putting out an ESG document or having slides in your investor roadshow. But I also think, um, you know, investors do recognize that management teams who pay attention to these kinds of topics Generally speaking, the management teams who are focused on ES, you know, environmental themes are also focused on good corporate governance and are also thinking holistically about the business. And over the long run, um, that can help drive investment decisions. So I, I would say my view is, is that it's not a, a driver of investment in shipping today, but increasingly it is a topic of questioning and it can help around the margins differentiate an investor's decision. Go ahead, Doug. I would agree. I would agree. Um, you know, and, and as the previous panel stated, there was a lot of emphasis on the E, but there's still the S and the G that um, a lot of companies do very well. Um, I mean, when we think about shipping, I mean, you know, you think about, you know, not the world, but we think about everything from bunker fuel to, you know, types of crude products transported, et cetera. But, you know, there has been a lot of progress on the ESG front, in my opinion. I mean, when you look at the increasing number of ship new builds um, that are going to be LNG fueled, I mean, the infrastructure is being built to accommodate more, but it's increasing. It's moving in that direction. When you look at the transportation of LNG as a commodity, um, cleaner burning type of a fuel. Um, so, so, you know, it's hard to say that there's not... Um, attention placed on ESG types of uh, principles. Um, it's hard to quantify how much, but, but I think Krista brought up a very good point. I think um, investors recognize that companies that do have a focus on ESG are not only going to be good on cor good corporate governance, but they're going to be good capital allocators, et cetera. I mean, it's, a, it's the hallmark of uh, a responsible management team. I mean, even when you see emissions reporting, I mean, those are all steps in the right direction. So even if you're not even though there may be there may be institutions that aren't going to invest in crude carriers, but if you're if you're greener than your competitor, for example, that may give that, that may be a difference going forward. Possibly, and, and I wouldn't say that they wouldn't invest in crude carriers to the extent that once again, I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on the commodity being transported, but it's it's recognized that it's it's required. 
how is it being transported? How or is the company addressing social and governance issues? I mean, it's more than just the E. Yeah, um, certainly among uh, key institutional investors in Scandinavia and Norway in particular is very high focus. Uh, and as uh, Doug mentioned, they, they're not going to stop investing in crew tankers, but they may pay attention to where you scrap your vessel and how you scrap it. That is also a form of being environmentally friendly uh, among the big uh, Norwegian pension funds, at least. And Chris, to your point, I'm oh, sorry, I was, yes, I was just going to say to your point on the U.S. is somewhat behind on some of the, I guess, the G issues, but in some of the European jurisdictions, there, there are issues is, is sort of tangible as board diversity and those, those types of things, which I think maybe to some extent are coming, I mean, at the state level, you see some things happening in the states now that there may be issues in the next couple of years on the shipping side, too. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, though. Well, I'm going to ask for your, the, the last topic first, and I agree with all of you, and I think, uh, I think it's about getting the information out there, uh, and it's about uh, facilitating for the buy-side community uh, to make uh, information available, uh, for instance, in Bloomberg, so you can benchmark the different companies uh, against each other, uh, so in that way, at least, uh, even though if you're uh, transporting uh, uh, petroleum products, um, uh, which might not check the, the E uh, part of the ESG, uh, you're complying with uh, everything else, which uh, I think is uh, increasingly important amongst investors, particularly in Scandinavia. I get the, the one other comment I'd add to this topic that is less about what investors are looking for in the ESG theme and, and more gets to kind of what it means for the industry. I think that, um, you know, as Doug pointed out, you know, we got to where we got in 2019 after years of working through different things in the cycles. And I think that one question that we hear from many of our clients is, as environmental standards are coming into play and nobody really knows, you know, what it's going to take to get there, a key question in the minds of ship owners is, you know, if you're ordering a new vessel, what is your residual value risk if, if it doesn't have the right technology to meet the new emission standards? And so to the extent that I, I think that one area for optimism around this theme is to the extent that that uh, keeps ordering uh, muted, that would be healthy for, for everyone in the capital markets. I'll switch gears a little bit again and say that um, I think statistics for 2019 in the capital markets is not something that anyone really wants to hear about or that we want to talk about. But one of the, the things that did happen in, in 19 is you saw the, the markets in Oslo versus New York um, for the first time. I think it depends on exactly how you look at the statistics, but they were pretty close in total capital raise. And I think that a lot of that was on the, the debt side and it was maybe on the smaller deal side. But nonetheless, that's sort of something that hasn't been seen before. Um, is that just indicative of, of a particularly bad year in, 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 in New York, or the types of deals that are maybe best tailored to, to New York, or is there something different going on in Oslo? Because I think some of the things that we see, the, the similarities in Oslo, it's still a lot of U.S. dollars coming in. It's still a lot of you know, the international uh, issuers that are going to Oslo. Um, so maybe I'll start with well, let me, I'll start with you on that because you sort of have the view both of a Norwegian bank and the New Yorker perspective, but it's, I'm curious to get both sides of that. Sure. I think, um, I think uh, 
it's easier to raise initial growth capital for shipping in Norway, just because um, on average, the Norwegians are a bit closer to shipping. Uh, the investor universe is quite educated on the different segments. And even the larger institutional investors, the pension funds in Norway, are willing to take shipping risk and go in early when they spot the cycles. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, in the US and in London, but on average, I would say that the Norwegian shipping-focused investors, they are easier to, go to get on board early in the cycle. But of course, New York will remain uh, a major hub for, uh, for finance and, and, and finance for shipping. Uh, but Oslo is a, is a great uh, initial platform and uh, easy to raise growth capital. And, and I would agree with Erling's comments. I mean, you know, oftentimes whenever, you know, this topic is put forth, it's kind of like almost a competitive thing, like, you know, Oslo versus New York, you know, this year they were equal, it must be bad for one, good for the other. But the way that I view and we view uh, both of those markets is they are very complementary of each other. Um, depending upon where you are in the cycle or where you are in the evolution of the company, or depending upon the size of the transaction you're trying to, uh, to get done. So, you know, if I'm looking to raise $100 million in debt, I'd probably go into Norway. If I'm looking to raise $600 million, I may go to New York. Um, so they both serve a purpose. And I think last year was maybe indicative of, you know, you're mentioning smaller transactions and, and how it was a, a very beneficial for the Oslo market. I mean, that's great. I mean, I think that that's what, you know, that's the, not just the role, but that, that's the, the complementary as, aspect of the, the Norwegian market. Um, and as we saw, um, not a lot was done in the U.S. last year. But, you know, whenever things turn and whenever companies need to raise, um, you know, significant quantities of capital and whatnot, um, you know, the New York market is there for that. So, so I think both are important and both uh, serve just different roles. So Oslo, we sort of continues to be the stepping stone maybe to a larger platform in, in New York. That's sort of the complementary. Well, I, I, in some cases, maybe a stepping stone, but in some cases, just an alternative. Um, once again, depending upon the size and the requirement. But the liquidity, clearly no one's challenging the liquidity in New York. And, and from that perspective, New York has continued to be the, the dominant market, I guess. Erling, you were saying too, and I think one of the things on the, on the Oslo markets you often hear about is a lot of the money that's going into those deals actually is international money or U.S. money coming in. And you're saying that there's an investor base in Oslo that's going to be more receptive in the small markets. But is it, do you see something changing that it's not a large percentage of those deals are still, let's say, the U.S. capital? It really depends, of course, from transaction to transaction, where in the cycle you are. Uh, but I, I think it's fair to say that even when we do a transaction in Norway, say you raise $100 million of equity, you will have a fair share that is coming from shipping knowledgeable investors in the U.S. as well, list, investing in a, a Norwegian-listed entity. Typically, it's around somewhere between 25 and 30 percent. Uh, but of course, they are the, the shipping-focused funds in the U.S. I, I think, though, where, whoops, um, the one area, though, what, that I do think maybe has changed a bit from the past is the comment that Oslo is a stepping stone to the U.S. Because um, I, I think our view is that the bar has gotten higher in terms of what it takes to list a shipping company in the U.S. There's a lot of public companies that are listed today. 
Um, and so investors in a new IPO are looking for differentiation, they're looking for size. And so the idea of raising Oslo OTC capital and then planning to list it in New York two years later, um, I, I, that doesn't always work in all cases. And, and so I, I do think it really depends on the circumstances of the company and is it, is it, does it have a trajectory that has the ability to, to grow, uh, deliver growth to its shareholders and become large enough to be suitable for the U.S. market? So I think that's a key question that, that people have to ask. And as Doug said, I think there, there are alternatives and they can be complementary, but I, I don't view it as an automatic stepping stone. So I won't say the U.S. bankers, but the U.S. lawyers have just made it too complicated to raise money in the, in the U.S. I mean, that's what you hear, right? Is it's just, Oslo is much quicker, it's much more efficient, it can happen on a much shorter also, also time. Also, the legal costs companies. are lower in Norway. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but. Yes, short. <laughs> shorter time to market and more cost efficient, but also it has some limitations, and uh, I agree with that they're complementary. Okay. Um, I guess, so, so coming back to the for most of us, I think a red light on our microphone means that it's muted as opposed to on, so I think that's why we're all having problems with these. Um, so, I mean, there, there have, there, and we could sound like the capital markets are just dead here. There, there have been some raises both in the U.S. as well, um, less so on the equity side, although there even have been some things in, in sort of the at-the-market offerings, some on the retail debt side. I'll start with, Krista, with you. If you, if you have an existing U.S.-listed company, that's going to come to you and say that it needs to raise, raise capital and it's not going to be satisfied with lending. Is there, is there a window for them to do that in the U.S. that you think that they can, can look to right, right now? Um, I, I think it depends. I, I'd say right now I wouldn't be advising somebody to go and issue equity because most of the existing public companies are trading at valuations which are reflective of, you know, a, a very weak start to 2020 with coronavirus. Um, and so I think it comes down to the circumstance. I mean, one reason why you haven't seen a lot of equity raised over the last four years by the listed companies has just been because the valuations of these companies has been such that it would be dilutive to their existing shareholders to be raising equity. And so I think that, um, you know, we are spending a lot more time with our clients thinking about capital structure, balance sheet, um, how you balance kind of the trade-offs of dividend policy versus retaining cash for organic growth. Um, because, you know, one thing that has not changed is this is a cyclical and volatile market. Um, you know, you, sometimes when you need capital, it's not going to be there for you. And so I think that the companies that have had the balance sheets to withstand not having to raise equity um, when their, value, their costs of capital were just too high in, in the markets, um, they've been better off. So I think that, you know, we believe, and as we talked about at the beginning, I think that, you know, we're, we're in a period where 2020 has started off worse than we all anticipated. Uh, we thought that it was going to be a much more conducive environment to raising capital. That is a bit different. Um, but we, we are optimistic for, as we progress through later this year, for companies that want to be issuing growth capital. Uh, and, and we do think that you know, there are investors out there, and we started to see that in the fourth quarter of last year and some of the deals that had happened, some of the companies that we took on the road and, and did non-deal marketing with. I think there are investors out there, but you know, they get nervous when they see the current stock price environment. Okay. 
Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, you know, now is not the time to be raising growth capital. Um, whenever you know a lot of share prices are down fifteen to fifty percent, um, so so that would be bad advice. Um, Maybe some guys were looking at doing it prior to the downturn, um, but uh, but now is not the time. You ride it out. You get to this better environment that we were all anticipating, and I think um, you know that will be a much more um, suitable environment. Now, I would say that despite um, how poorly um, some of the commodity shipping names have traded over the last four to six weeks. Um, just anecdotally, um, in terms of investor demand. So I usually look at where the share prices are trading relative to NAV to gauge investor demand. But, you know, I received an unsolicited email on Friday night from a leading tanker company uh, saying they'd been on the road with our analyst. Three fantastic days, very impressed. They were shocked at the degree of investor interest. So um, people are, eyeballs are paying attention. It may not be reflected uh, in the share prices yet, but if the markets rebound like we all anticipate with, you know, who knows exactly when, but 2Q, something like that, there seemingly is a lot of um, attention uh, being placed uh, on some of the names, and people are seemingly viewing this as a potential buying opportunity for whenever that inflection point inevitably comes. Right. I, uh, I, I agree with both of you, and I think um, now is not the time, uh, unless... Uh, Unless you do so for, uh, unless you have to, and unless you do so for balance sheet purposes or to uh, to maintain a solid cash position, but uh, I don't think there is a single peer uh, that trades above NAV right now, and uh, there are a few uh, tanker companies uh, that are trading slightly above, but b beyond that, uh, I think most, at least most of the shipping stocks that we cover at Clarkson's are all uh, trading at a discount to NAV. So um, yeah, now is not the time. And on these balance sheets, I mean, some companies are doing share buybacks, they're doing the dividends, or those, you know, part, part of the, the project there has to be is to try to bring the price back, but it, maybe I'm simplifying it, but you don't see a lot of reward necessarily for doing that to date. Is that still something that makes sense, or do you just sit on the cash and just ride this out since you don't know how long it's going to be? Go ahead. Okay. We've done a lot of work on this topic um, over the course of the last several months. Um, the benefits of dividend policies, um, the benefits of share repurchase programs, et cetera, um, like literally like 40 to 60 pages and marketing index and whatnot. What we have found is over time, over not two years, three years, but like 20 years, companies with dividends generally traded two turns better than companies without dividends. Right now, that's not the case. Over the last six months, we've seen a convergence in the valuation um, of, of each group. But generally, dividends, investors reward that. Now, there's a lot of um, variables that go into that, whether you're talking about, I mean, investors want to know that dividends are going to be there, not just for one quarter or two, but for a significant period of time. And so whether it's contract coverage, whether it's um, minimal financial leverage, all sorts of things go into, you know, kind of what would make an investor feel comfortable. But, um, you know, as you've seen a trend towards dividend payments announced by a number of companies, um, I think that there is historical evidence to support that over through the cycles, then that is um, uh, a, a, a sound strategy. Share buybacks is always good. I mean, I think each of these things, to the extent that when we were talking about it uh, on the ESG topic, to the extent that management is focused on good corporate allocation, um, uh, capital allocation, um, that is always a good thing, and investors, we think, will reward that over time, whether it's just because they're paying a dividend or a share buyback or what have you. Okay. 
Erling, yeah. did you want to? No, I agree fully with that. I couldn't have said it better myself. It's, uh, it's also very dependent on how your balance sheet looks like and uh, what kind of rates you're earning. If I'm a rival company right now, probably I'm going to retain the cash and not pay out uh, huge dividends. And, and we, we've talked about this before as well, but it becomes difficult for some of the smaller cap shipping companies to really use share repurchases effectively as a tool because in buying back your shares, you're taking liquidity out of the market, which can be part of the reason why some of these companies you know, trade at, at more of a discount. Over the long term, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but in this industry in particular, it can be a more difficult decision in light of the fact that you know, for a smaller company, it, it, it becomes a more difficult dynamic in terms of you know, what, whether you're going to see that impact shorter term or longer term. Yes, so, Doug, you were saying you're seeing you know, there's this investor interest that's, that's out there. They're, they're looking at this. So when, when and I'm not opening this to the panel, but when, when the markets do open, let's just assume that it's going to be later this year and they open, what are, we, we hear a lot about the companies, there's, there's a minimum size companies that they have to be. It's going to be the two or $300 million market caps. Those aren't going to be the ones that attract attention. And obviously, you're depending on if you're talking about institutional investors or just or the retail. But, but by and large, what, what, are the, what are the companies that are going to benefit when the markets do open again, let's say, later, later this year? And are there, are there things that you would look for in those companies, whether it's sector, obviously, but also just within each company? Again, ESG issues, I guess, we've touched, but maybe on the, the size or primarily on size. No, I guess large companies with solid and robust balance sheets, uh, they will benefit in terms of pricing and, uh, and also in terms of liquidity. Uh, but whether or not they um, have to do anything in terms of growth and further initiatives, I think, uh, I, think um, I don't think that's the case. I think uh, five, six years ago, um, most of the listed peers were smaller companies and, and, uh, and most of the funds uh, that went into those structure were, uh, structures were... Uh, were um, source to fund growth opportunities. Uh, and today, I think uh, uh, owners in general are more looking uh, towards uh, other alternatives, such as uh, consolidation. Which we've been hearing for some time, but there's still room for that to happen. Do you think we'll see more of that? I guess that's the sort of what that question is going towards. I think so over time, yes. But uh, it also takes, uh, it also, it's also time consuming and it takes time. Yeah, I think, it, you know, we, we hear consistently from investors that they would like to see, you know, several kind of champions in a particular sector. Uh, I do think that supports continued consolidation, but th there's also room in the market for differentiation in terms of asset strategy, financial strategy. Um, I do believe that you know investors want to see a minimum size, but if a company is able to achieve that and continue to grow effectively, then then that's going to be the key. I think it's gotten more complicated these days with dividends. Um, I think, you know, the we agree that you know over the long term, dividend paying stocks have have done better, uh, but some of that was you know, if you go back to the very long term in a different environment, um, you know. Pre-financial crisis, you had a lot of shipping companies come to market paying a very high dividend yield that was unsustainable. I think investors are looking at dividends with a, a 
different lens today in terms of the sustainability of that dividend. And most companies, and, their, and they think about their payout policies appropriately so, are thinking about those payout policies after reserving for their debt, um, thinking about the amortization. And that's all good. But if you look across the commodity sectors, both the tanker sector and the dry bulk sector, uh, the general expectation is that many of the public companies will be returning to uh, dividends over the course of the next year. And so I think that that is something that in a cyclical sector will, will drive investor interest. But no, no one's expecting the full payout yeah. dividend, though, is what you're saying. That, that those days right. are gone. Yeah, yeah good early. Yeah, no, I, we agree that, you know, size of the companies are important, market cap is important, uh, but another element, and increasingly so, is the liquidity in, in the stock. Uh, so you can have a four or five hundred million market cap company uh, which trades uh, significant volumes in, in the second market, it's, it's easier for investors to come in and out and, and, and play the stock. So you don't necessarily need to have this uh, billion dollar dream all the time. You can have smaller market cap, but uh, it's important to have significant free float and liquidity in the stock, which allows even larger investors to come in and, and take a position without driving up the stock price. That's a very, that's a very important point. Market cap doesn't always equal liquidity. Um, liquidity is of utmost importance. So in the interest of time, just two examples. Um, Last year, when you started seeing rates starting to strengthen, um, it was the larger um, market cap names that did have a, a, a nice free float that were trading that got the closest to net asset value before we saw the virus hit. So you're seeing it showing up in the valuations. But just anecdotally, whenever I used to be an analyst, I'm not going to name names, but you're sitting there in a Boston mutual funds office, right? So long only type of a money, uh, money. You're talking about a particular tanker sector, and you're going through the spiel about supply, demand, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, who are the names in this particular uh, universe. And you start naming names, and you, they hear about one particular name, and they're like, yeah, they're too small. I would love to invest in them, but you know, I, I just can't because I can't get out. And so then they have to buy another name that does have more liquidity. So they like the sector, they like the management, but because of their inability to exit a position, they had to buy a different company because that one was more liquidly traded than the first. Good point. Good point. I have to admit, I think most people do think of size and liquidity going hand in hand, but it's not always the case. All right. I guess I'm just on the last question. So if anyone wants to venture, last year at this time, some of you were saying 2020 is going to be a strong year. We'll see the equity markets, let's say, open again. Do you want to venture whether that's going to happen U.S. or, let's say, in the U.S. markets before summer or before Thanksgiving, at least before the new year? We're pushing out later and later. I, I am optimistic for the second half of this year, but I won't go any further than that at this point because none of us know what's happening uh, with, with the virus and how long this is going to last. Well, I work at Clarkson, so I'm uh, generally optimistic. But um, I think, uh, I think uh, we, it's correlated, right, with, with what we see in the order books. Uh, and quite frankly, right now, there are not that much... Uh, that many new orders uh, to fund, uh, and I think um, markets will reopen, but I think uh, we need to see a uh, fundamental change in the rate environment. I think when, when VLCC spot rates fall from uh, $100,000 a day to $20,000 a day in uh, less than a week, then I think... Um, you know that that creates uncertainty, and it's uh, it makes it difficult for investors to to uh, to believe in the story. And um, 
however, we do, and I think uh, I think we'll bounce back. Um, and, but it's uh, it's difficult to say when markets will reopen. But I think. Uh, in terms of new growth, uh, if any, at this point, will likely be funded with uh, uh, leasing and, and alternative sources of capital, which we've been through uh, on several panels today. Really? Um, I do think that the second half is going to be better for the previously mentioned reasons. I do think that this will unwind. I do think that the Chinese will launch some sort of stimulus program to get their full year GDP growth equal to last year's. So that bodes very well for, um, for our uh, universe. Um, so the markets may reopen by year. And now if companies don't quite get to their net asset values, I'd recommend looking at convertible bonds because that could be a way of raising cheap capital. And, and potentially raising money at uh, or above NAV if, um, if, if you know things end up converting. So, so we're quite optimistic. Uh, last word is yours. Same goes for us. We think um, we think risk is on the downside the next uh, next few weeks, but then we think it will rebound, and we remain optimistic, particularly on the on the crude and product segments. Crude and product. All right. Well, we'll end there. Thank you all. Thank you. great uh, panel. Thank you to the panelists. And now we're coming to the last, but certainly not the least of the panels of the day. We are concluding with uh, private equity, M&A, and consolidation. That's a very important topic in shipping. And I kindly request that you all stay and pay attention to Per Olaf, to uh, Krista, to Axel, and to Roberto, and to Paul. Maybe you all go down for a picture there, or... Uh... So uh, we have uh, Greg here, our friend from New York, Greg Chase, from Reed Smith. Thank you, Greg. And thank you for all of Thank you for uh, So Greg, the floor is yours. <laughs>